Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 1st, 2011, and my guest is Stephen Kaplan, the Neubauer Family Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Good to be here. Our topic for today is what might be called the super rich, what gets called sometimes the top 1%. Sometimes we're going to look at the top one-tenth of 1%. And we're going to organize our conversation around a paper that we will link to that you've written with uh, Joshua Rao called Wall Street and Main Street, What Contributes to the Rise in the Highest Incomes? It was published in the Review of Financial Studies in 2009. There's a lot of evidence that the richest Americans are richer than the richest Americans of the past. I phrase it that way because it is important to remember that in most of the recent discussions of inequality, and it's a very hot topic right now, we are typically not talking about the same people. So when people say the top 1% have gotten richer, that does uh, not mean that somebody in, say, 1980 necessarily has more – who was in the top 1% is now making a lot more or has a bigger share than they had in uh, today than in 1980 because they're taking a snapshot, a slice in time of, of, a, of a segment of the income distribution in 1980 versus today or today versus 1995. Um, so that's a really important distinction. I'm sure we'll blur it because of the nature of the English language, but I want everybody who's listening to remember that that's uh, what the data are literally uh, measuring when we usually uh, are talking about the top 1%. There are data that look at the same people over time, and they – by the way, often get a very different pattern of who has gotten the gains and the relative amount of inequality over time. But we're going to stick with the standard view, which is that we look at a snapshot in time today versus a snapshot in time a while back, whether it's 15 or 20 or 30 years ago, the people who are in the top 1% or the top 10th of 1% have higher shares and typically make more money or sometimes a lot more money than the people who were at the top 1% uh, in the past. So how much has changed? How much richer are those folks at the top compared to the folks at the top a while back? So the sort of the comparison I think that most people focus on is if you go back to say 1980 or the late 70s, the top 1% earned roughly 10% of the adjust, adjusted gross income in the United States. So the way this is usually framed is in terms of income shares, and uh, it's pre-tax income, it's adjusted gross income, so no taxes. But in the late 70s, early 80s, it was about a little under 10% of adjusted gross income, and it peaked in 2007 at roughly, well, not roughly, exactly 23.5%. So if you look at pre-tax income of the top 1%, went from under 10% to 235 Now, what's interesting about that is the 235 in 2007 
was the second highest on record. The previous, the highest and highest still is 1928, where it was 23.9%. Ah, the good old days. The good old days. Now, <laughs> it's not comparable because I think taxes were much lower back in 1928 than they are today. So after tax, you might get a different answer. But pre-tax, it was, you know, very high historically. Now, what's interesting, in the last two years, uh, it's Small. come way down. Yeah, recessions are bad for the rich. And that's, if, if you care about inequality per se, uh, recessions are great. It, it, that is That appears to be true. So in 2009, the top 1% I calculated at 17.6. I've seen other calculations uh, a tad under 17, but it's basically gone from 23.5 to 17. And what's interesting about 17 uh, is that inequality in 2009 is actually lower than it was during any year of Bill Clinton's second term. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, now, when we talk about the top 1% of adjusted gross income, uh, what is roughly included in that measure of income? It includes obviously earnings that you uh, earn in your paycheck, but it also includes capital gains, right? It includes dividends, every cap- capital gains, and it would include wouldn't include um, interest income, uh, for example, on municipals. Uh, it would include. Uh, gains from options, uh, gains from partnerships. So it includes quite a bit. I think the one thing it doesn't include that you know some people get a fair amount of income, or at least they used to, is uh, income on municipal bonds, although that's gone down quite a bit as interest rates have gone down. Yes, right. So uh, the, the trend overall, like take out the recession. I, actually, I should say first, I, I want to quote P.J. O'Rourke because I think this is also important to keep in mind and often forgotten. He says, wealth is not a pizza. So if somebody gets a bigger share of the pizza, it doesn't mean you have less to eat. So when the, for example, when that share fell from, say, 23 point something to 17 point something uh, over the 2007 to 2009 period – that wasn't good news for the rest of us uh, in the 99% because our incomes also went down. Theirs just went down a lot more. Correct. So a lot of people, again, it's it, as an economist, I find it deeply annoying and I find it particularly annoying when economists do it. But uh, there's a big difference between uh, – wealth is not – income is not a zero – we're talking about income. Income is not a zero-sum game. Somebody else's gain does not come at your expense. It could, and we'll, I assume we'll talk later about when it does, but in general uh, – these numbers don't have automatic implications for the 99%. No, I mean, clearly in 2009, a falling tide sank all boats, right? Uh, and uh, at least on you know, the income share side, it, uh, it hurt the, uh, the top worse than it actually hurt the bottom. And when you said all boats, you meant most. Of course, there are a few industries that thrive during bad times. Economists being one of them. Okay, excuse me, most. <laughs> I knew what you, you meant. Thank I knew what you very meant. much. You were being precise. Most yeah. boats. Thank yeah. you. Well, I, I knew what you meant, and I think everybody knew what you meant. But I always like to uh, uh, note the poignance that, that economists who didn't – most of us did not predict the recession. Those of us who did, I think, were mainly lucky. Uh, and who don't seem to have a good, clear picture of how to get out of it are the ones who are benefiting the most. Uh, so I just – there's an irony there, a tragic right. irony. Um, so 
Uh, of these uh, folks, uh, wh- what's it take to get into the top 1% uh, approximately? How much adjusted gross income do you have to have? And remember, this is a j- adjusted gross income. It's it's after some deductions for the standard deduction. What else is deducted from it? It's not your raw income. No, no. Adjusted gross income doesn't have any t- taxable income takes out the standard deduction. Adjusted gross oh, income sorry. is before any deduction. Okay, okay. So that's good. Um, how much do you have to make to get into the top 1% today? So it it varies, and uh, it was I, I would say it's around somewhere between three and four hundred thousand dollars. And again, it varies from year to year. In two thousand seven, it was over four hundred thousand. In two thousand nine, you know, you'd be you know probably the lower end of three hundred thousand. And again, this is income, not wealth. So the Correct. the assets that that various that get you to the top 1% of the wealthiest Americans would be a very different number. And that's very much, much harder to calculate because, well, income we can measure pretty well thanks to the IRS. Wealth is very, very hard to measure. You, you know, it's based on surveys, and you, you, know, you don't necessarily know whether you're getting representative samples. So I think uh, Ed Wolf at NYU is the big... Uh, Guy on uh, on wealth distributions and uh, yeah, the data are hard. I'm uh, trying to think if I can find that, but I don't. I don't have that on the tip of my uh, tip of my tail. Although it looks like sort of for uh, wealth, um, yeah, the top one percent looks like somewhere between um, you know five and ten million dollars, according to his assets. Now, how about going back to income? How much income do you have to earn per year to get into the top one-tenth of one percent? The top one-tenth of one percent. So this 1%. is one one-thousandth, one the top one one-thousandth of the American income distribution. There we're looking at, uh, one, again, in 2009, it was on the lower side. It was roughly, uh, actually, less than a million and a half. So it was like 1.4 million. A mere 1.4 million. A mere 1.4 million. What was it in 2007? In 2007, which was uh, our peak year, you had to turn over 2 million. To get into that more elite class. Now, uh, Paul Krugman recently blogged. I forget where he got it from, but he recently made the, the observation that I think is true that much of the gain in the income share of the top 1% is actually accruing to the top one-tenth of 1%. Uh, I forget over what time period is like. I want to say at least the 90s and the 2000s is my memory. I'll put a link up to it. But um, yeah, just- This is not so clear. So let's, let's look. Let's go 2000. I, I like to stop at 2000 because this is a fun one. 2000 was – uh, the last good year. year of Bill Clinton's term. It was also a, the year before the recession of 2001, so it's a little Correct. bit of a mini so, peak. And there, the uh, top 1% had 21.5% of income, mm-hmm. and the top 0.1% had about 11. So half of the top 1% went to a tenth of that group. Correct, and that's about that seems to be about the. I'm looking at the pattern here. That that's that true in 07? pretty consistent over time. Uh, in 1980, the top one percent got ten. The top point one percent got three and a half. So uh, in 1980, I guess it was 35 percent, and uh, 
more recently, it's been close to 50%. So his point that it's gotten more skewed is correct. What about the 07? Do you have that? So the 07, it was basically 23 and a half and 12. Yeah, about the same as it was in 2000. And then uh, in 09, interestingly, 17.6 and 8. So uh, 09, the, the, the very top the biggest hit in some ways. A little bit, but it's still about half. Uh, Yeah, it's still about half. I remember now his data showed the increase, the share going to the top one-tenth of one percent starting around 1995, a year that I think is somewhat significant. I want to, we'll come back to that later. Could be a coincidence uh, or a post hoc ergo propter hoc analysis on my part, fallacy, but we'll, we'll, I'll challenge you with it and see what you think. Um, So you've, what you've done with those are all preliminaries. I want to talk about your work now with um, Joshua Rao. In your study, you made a very heroic attempt to figure out how many, almost literally how many, and certainly rough percentages, where do those top 1% and top one-tenth of 1%, what are they doing? Where do they come from? What are their occupations? We have an idea of, of what classes of, of occupation industries these folks are found, and you tried to actually measure it. So it's easy to throw around, and I do this myself. Um, I, I should be more careful, but it's easy to to just say, well, we know that there's a bunch of different groups that are really rich, entrepreneurs who own their own companies, CEOs, hedge fund managers, investment bank execs, athletes, celebrities. But what we really care about, it. one really important thing to know is how important are each of those groups because I feel very differently about – a great athlete like uh, Albert Pujols who's going to make a lot of money next year and already makes a lot of money this year uh, and is in the top 1% and is going to do even better um, than he has in the past probably versus somebody who through corporate uh, financial manipulation or government policy is able to exploit um, leverage and, and, and bailouts and get people to lend them money at cheap rates, et cetera, et cetera. So what do we know about the mix of people in that? What have you discovered about the mix of people in that top 1% and top one-tenth of 1%? So the motivation for that paper came from listening to, you know, whether it was pundits or, or even some academics say that, you know, income inequality was largely driven by CEOs and public company executives who were, you know, getting paid huge amounts. Ripping off shareholders. And they were ripping off shareholders. They were controlling their boards and there was no governance. And uh, that uh, the corporate governance system in the United States was broken. And the the argument those people made again is that you know everyone else is paid on an arm length basis the CEOs are the only ones who you know they control their boards they set their own pay and there was this view that you know they were out of control and driving everything it just keeps going up and up because it can and all the social forces that used to restrain it aren't there anymore and that's the that's one argument you hear exactly and i you know You're i serve on a couple of boards i you know teach people who are on boards, and I had a more positive view of boards. I think that, uh, or at least thought at the time, that many boards uh, try to do the right thing. Uh, I had a view that there was a market for CEOs, and I had a view that uh, CEOs are paid a lot, but it's a really tough job, and uh, 
they maybe should be paid a lot. So what Josh and I did was we looked at all these other groups uh, to see how, really to compare how the CEOs did relative to those other groups. So uh, we and, and thereby figure out what, what, how much they contribute to this issue. Yeah, and and you know, so the 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 hard part about the paper is that you have this great data on what top executives are paid because you have to public top executives of public companies what yeah. they're paid because uh, the SEC requires you to report that. Uh, you don't have such great data on everybody else, and so we cobbled together you know whatever data we could uh, to do a comparison. So we. Uh, looked at investment bankers, and uh, we looked at uh, public filings of compensation from the top investment banks. We had to make some assumptions, but we uh, attempted to generate how many of them were highly paid. Uh, then uh, we looked at uh, hedge funds. Hedge funds have, uh, grew enormously in terms of assets under management from 1992 uh, 2007 and, and even today, although it's, you know it's come down some since then. Uh, we looked at private equity investors and venture capital investors. Private equity also, the assets under management in private equity have grown uh, tremendously uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. KKR, Carlisle, Blackstone, Blackstone famously with Steve Schwartzman. Uh, and so we attempted to estimate we know, you know, the fees that are paid in for hedge funds and private equity funds, and we could make some assumptions about uh, how many people were highly paid. Uh, there's actually reasonably good data on professional athletes. Yep, so we sure. looked at professional athletes, uh, and there's some data you can get on lawyers, uh, top partners at, uh, at law firms, and uh, we looked at those as well. And you're missing – there's some obvious categories you don't have data on. So you don't have doctors, I think you mentioned. You don't have privately held firms, uh, principals and executives and owners, et cetera. Obviously, entre some entrepreneurs then are not going to be in the mix. Correct, and right close to the closely held businesses, which are you know before they go public. And across – and you know, listeners can go look at the paper. Some of the – for some of the estimates, you had to make some – Somewhat heroic assumptions. Others, you had pretty good data, and it was it spoke for itself more or less. Uh, having done all that, what part of the universe do you think you captured? What's your estimate of of how what part of the top one percent you actually were able to observe? Yeah. So at the end of the day, we think yeah you know, we captured somewhere you know depending on you know what percentile you're you know you. Uh, Fall upon, but like from the top 0.1 percent to the top 0.0001 percent, uh, we got somewhere between say 15 and 25 percent. So let's say 20. We got 20 percent. We think. Meaning, and I want to make sure this, this is important. Let's say it's 20 percent is what you you think you got. Uh -huh. That means that 80 percent of the of the people we've been talking about. You didn't observe. They're from categories that you don't have. But are you pretty sure that? Of the 20% you did observe, you've got most of the hedge fund managers, Wall Street execs, CEOs, athletes, etc.? I suspect we, we were conservative throughout, um, except for the, you know, the public company execs. We, we had 
pretty perfectly because they they filed. I think on the others we were we aired on the side of conservatives. So I I, I don't know. I yeah. Let's put it this way. I, I doubt you know if we're at twenty that we can sort of put our fingers on. Uh, even if we were more aggressive, my guess is we wouldn't get above thirty. But you which have is where you're going. I think no, no, it's not. I'm just curious whether you th- whether the missing groups are within the categories that you're looking at, or all pretty much outside the groups. Do you do you think you've got most of the hedge fund managers that are important, or just have a? I know you have more than thirty. I assume you have more than, like you said, you have. I think close we to probably a, have a lot of that. The hedge fund private equity we're probably pretty good on. The we probably don't include some money managers who. Uh, we didn't, I think, put in that. Those were harder to get numbers on. And uh, the public company executives were pretty good on. My guess is the lawyers were pretty good on. So I guess, yeah, the celebrities, I suspect, were yeah, light on. That's where you miss. Yeah, you probably didn't have Kim Kardashian in your survey. Exactly. And we only had 100, you know, making more than uh, 1.4 million, which I think is almost definitely on the low side. 100. Celebrities, celebrities. yeah. The, again, the top celebrities, you, you rely on things like Forbes lists, and they don't, you know, there are a lot of people who go missing sure. from that. And I, I mentioned Kim just because, you know, we're close friends, and I'm sure she'll be on Econ Talk, so no, I'm kidding. I, I mentioned her because today was, we're taping this on a day, I think we just came out that her marriage tragically is over, and for exactly. those of you who pay attention to those things, you can go look at it. I I happen to have noticed it. Um, Actually, I've never watched the show. Yeah, I, I missed the I, I missed the whole thing. I just I was getting a haircut this morning. They had it on the background, and I, I, my heart goes out to them. But um, at any rate, uh, but she made a lot of money evidently on that ex, uh, experience. So she would be in the top one percent this in this past year. I for certain. Okay, so what did you find? What do you think? Uh, what are some of the patterns that were interesting, and what did it, did you learn from them? So. Among the patterns that were were most interesting is that the the CEOs weren't unusual. This that is the CEOs of non Wall Street, non financial public right? companies. Yeah, were just not unusual. Meaning in that their their pay went up, but it more or less over time went up like the rest of the top one percent or the top point one percent. So this view that you know, the corporate governance is broken, that boards are corrupt, um, seems hard to understand when the CEOs are going up just like all the others. For example, lawyers, uh, top corporate lawyers saw their pay go up from, say, 1980 to, to date, uh, Partners at top law firms have increased their pay by about the same amount as CEOs or the same percentage. Well, if it, it, it certainly is inconsistent with the theory that CEO pay at at Main Street uh, publicly traded companies is the source of the one percent growing. It doesn't totally. It doesn't refute the possibility that corporate governance is broken. Um, well you, well, you have to tell me for corporate. So I agree. Number one, it says they're they're a very small fraction of the total. So you know, if you you know, what do we have? Somewhere between two and six percent of the very top would come from uh, public company executives. Um, but the fact that that their pay 
uh, is not behaving any differently from the pay of you know investment bankers or lawyers um, suggests that and you know it's it's they're all kind of in the same being driven by similar forces. Right. Why would it be that you know this one group, corporate boards and CEOs are corrupt and are overpaying themselves? Why would they being paid be being paid roughly the same as people who are getting paid through arm's length dealing? Yeah, you think they could do even better than that if they were uh, exactly. But of course, the cynic says a particular kind of cynic, not my kind, but there are cynics who would say, "Well, yeah, they've all figured out all these people at the top." Uh, Again, what Paul Krugman in this recent blog post called the, the oligarchy. They've all figured out how to exploit the political system to enhance their own uh, – feather their own nests. It's possible. You'd have yeah, to- it's, it's possible. The, the other thing that, that um, strikes me there is hard to kind of reconcile with that is that – and this is, this is more – anecdotal than, than data because the data are hard to find, but you do see similar patterns all over the world. And you have, uh, you know, I certainly see it with my students who go to, you know, whether it's uh, London or, or Asia now, uh, the pay at the, at the top has, you know, it's, it's uh, all these places uh, for top talent do pay, you know, large numbers. So we'll come back and talk about alternative theories to that oligarchical oligarchical explanation. Uh, but let's let's still stick with your findings. So you found that for the CEOs, it's, they seem to be following the same pattern. Which another way to say it might be that suggests there's a market for very talented people, uh, and and they're part of that. They're not different. They're not manipulating the market. Um, that is basically the conclusion we came to. Uh, and I'm sympathetic to that conclusion, so I want to push back against it in a little bit. We'll talk about that when we get to the theories. But what else did you find in the in the data? Some remarkable things about um, hedge funds. <laughs> that was amazing. Talk about now, that. The, the, this, this is one that is uh, was a lot of fun uh, when you talk about it. But if you look at the what the top hedge fund managers earn – uh, in let's see, where's the uh, number? In 2009, which was remember not a great year for you know the very top. Uh, there are estimates that the top 25 hedge fund investors earned over uh, 25 billion. A billion. And they averaged a billion apiece. They in averaged a billion apiece. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Fair <laughs> amount of money. And when you add up what all five hundred S and P five hundred CEOs earned, and the S and P yeah S and P five hundred CEO in two thousand nine earned about eight million dollars each, which is a lot of money. But eight million times five hundred is four billion. And the 25 top hedge fund investors earned 25 billion, so that's five or six times as much. That's a mind-boggling number. Um, some might say that it's more than enough. <laughs> it is a mind-boggling number. More, you know, whether it whether you know whether it's more than enough is a you know that is 
uh, I guess a, a value judgment. Um, what what we were I think more interested in doing rather than kind of thinking about the fairness issues, which are very very hard to I think um, you can those can be argued many ways. We were really more interested in understanding you know what could explain this and what could explain what really is the pervasiveness of this increase at the top. So the CEOs went up, but they didn't go up any more than uh, than these other groups. The bankers went up. The hedge fund managers, you know, obviously went up a lot. The lawyers went up. I think the one of the amusing things about uh, disclosure is that you, uh, Eric Holder, for example, and the other people going into the government attorney have to disclose what they earned. Attorney and General of the United States. Eric Holder, the Attorney General of the United States. You know what he earned the year before he was Attorney General as a law partner? Uh Nope, I don't. $3.3 million. That's a good year. He uh, was a 0.1% kind of guy. In fact, that probably put him in the 0.05%, I would guess. That might make him a little more sensitive to the problem. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> just, just giving him a shot. I'm trying so my best. <laughs> what, what explain? And then the hedge funds, obviously, are you know probably the outliers may not be the right word. The, the hedge funds are certainly at the extreme. And, uh, you know, John Paulson uh, had uh, a couple of very good years where uh, his 20% of the profits at his hedge fund were, you know, well into the billions. Um, you know, technology, globalization, and incentivization. So what are those three things? First of all, you know, technology has changed tremendously over the last 30 years, uh, particularly information technology, which allows you to scale your talent. So where do you see that? In the financial markets, you know, with computers and computerized trading, uh, you can you can push, you know, billions of dollars around very quickly. And you couldn't do that so easily 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So technology allows, you know, talent to scale. You see that on uh, in entertainment. So with, you know, cable, which focuses, allows you to um, segment your audience and, and get your product to uh, actually get more product now to more people. Uh, that allows talent to scale. And I think that, you know, for lawyers, you're applying your talent to bigger deals. Uh, technology is I think has been very important, and it's been information technology, which which has really helped people scale. The second piece is globalization, and again, it allows you to, you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you're an investor, you can invest not just in the United States, you can invest globally. If you are a corporation, uh, you can invest globally, you know, it's allowed companies to outsource, and that also allows talent to scale. And then the third thing that I think has also increased over time is, you know, call it incentivization, where uh, hedge funds, you know, the rise of hedge funds and private equity funds, uh, the pay on that is, you know, Two and twenty, but the key part is the twenty, where Explain you get twenty percent of your pro- of the profits. Explain the two and twenty. 
So the two and twenty, which you know maybe one in twenty, but it's uh, it, 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 the twenty is is almost always there. Is that if you manage a private equity fund or manage a hedge fund, so you know if you're George Soros at a hedge fund or uh, Steve Schwartzman at at uh, a hedge, well, sorry, what did I say? If you're if you're uh, Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone, which Blackstone, is a private equity yeah. fund, uh, no, I'm just. I'm babbling here. So if you're George Soros at a hedge fund, uh, and if you're Steve Schwartzman at a private equity fund, uh, people give you capital. So let's say you have $10 billion to invest. Which we, um, we have to say, <clears throat> that's not easy to get to do. You've got to convince a lot of really savvy people that you're trustworthy with their money. So that that's you know, it's not just laying around. It's not just laying around, but again, the the the, the scalability – there are large pools of capital now, whether it's pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, uh, or whatever, that weren't so large 30 years ago. And yeah, you know, that's partially due to technology, partially due to globalization, partially due to growth, yeah, partially due to growth. Um, so you have these big pools of money, and when you, you know, whether it's a Schwartzman or a Soros, gets 10 billion dollars. Uh, to invest, the way they're compensated is they get an annual management fee, which is you know generally somewhere between one uh, and two percent of assets under management. So, let's say you know you have ten billion dollars. Uh, one one to two percent is a hundred to two hundred million dollars a year. You're off to a good start. So that's real money, and then. You get twenty percent of the profits. So if George Soros has a good year and you know, makes, let's say, a fifty percent return, so he's made five billion dollars for his investors, uh, he gets twenty percent of that five billion. So he gets the hundred million, hundred to two hundred million management fee, and then he gets a billion dollars of the profit share, uh, which is. Uh, a lot of money, and if it goes down and it's and worth it, say it, eight billion or six billion after a year or two, he still gets the one to two percent. It's a smaller number now because it's of a smaller base, and he correct, doesn't get the kicker, right? He doesn't. You know, that's 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 it. And if he does that for a while, people start to cash out of the fund and don't give him any more money. That is correct. Uh, but you still have to ask the question. Um, uh, in a really good year, I make maybe uh, fifteen to twenty percent on my um, no-load index mutual fund. There are many years I don't get close to that, obviously, uh, and it, sometimes it's negative. And I pay the mutual fund company a very small amount to, to do the indexed fund because it's very cheap, Correct. competition, etc. So the one puzzle is. First puzzle is why is it that hedge fund managers are able to earn? Obviously, if if you can earn fifty percent year in year out, or twenty, let's say more more likely, or even ten, uh, people would be, like to give you money. And uh, the question is, how are they able to do that? And how many people are able to do that? So that's where the the evidence is a bit unclear. Uh, on the hedge fund side, the evidence of Consistent outperformance is actually pretty weak. So I think there are, you know, some people who do that, you know, very well have some good years and then they have some bad years. John Paulson is a nice example. He, he was the guy who, uh, made a huge amount of money on the mortgage debacle. Uh, 
Uh, and then he had another extremely good year. Uh, this year, he's having a terrible year. But the puzzle is to draw skilled people into that activity. Uh, it's going to roughly – it's going to take into account that that volatility, obviously, the, the rewards. As people compete uh, to try to – there are a lot of people who would like to have that job, one way, another way to correct. say it. A lot of people would like to be able to manage a few billion even, let alone 10. And so they're offering their skills at – they'd be happy to take a half a percent. Instead of taking two and 20 or one and 20, they'd be thrilled to take a half and 10 Oh, Are, why doesn't that happen? Yeah. So does it does that happen? And and if so, if not, why not? Here is the problem, Ross. Which is, uh, I do this in my class, and it and it's quite fun because uh, this this is similar in private equity and and for hedge funds. Now, Russ, you you would like to you'd be willing to manage money for uh, you know one percent sure. you know, instead of two and twenty. Seems like you'll a good job. A, you'll take one in ten. Yep. Okay, so I, I tell I ask my students that, and a few of them raise their hand. I'm in, yeah. And and then I like I say, okay, now switch positions. You're not a hedge fund manager. You're now a, a pension fund. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to give Russ money? Yeah, it, but I'm cheap. I'm, I'm only going to take ten percent, not twenty. No, and nobody raises their hand. Correct. And, sure. and you ask them why, and they go, well, if he was any good, or if he were any good. He'd be charging two and twenty. If Which, he's charging one and ten, he must be a loser. And there's some truth to that. I would be a loser, but <laughs> but but we but know. I mean, that's it, it's a market that clears. You know, it doesn't clear on price because if you if you deviate downward, particularly on the 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 twenty percent of the profits. That is, that's a bad signal. You can lower your management fee a little bit. You know, that, that's not, because there you're not aligned. But when you deviate on the carry, that's a bad signal. And so that's, that I think is why it's very hard in these markets, private equity and, and hedge funds. It's very hard to deviate downward. You could deviate upward, and some people do. Um, but deviating down is, is very hard. But it also has to be the case uh, for that story to work that, that there have to be a very small number of people who are capable of doing it because correct, correct. Um, you know you're getting paid for talent that yeah. there's there's no doubt cuz it 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 begs the question well how to get to 20 why don't they just make it 40 why not go to what i ask my students is if if it's just a signal then you should charge 30 cuz then you'll get even more money cuz then people think you must be really good and that, that can't be true right well it, people, does, it does in venture capital that's what happens it doesn't keep rising, though. You don't. Uh, no, it goes to thirty. Is about as high as it right. Gets. It doesn't go to forty. Yeah. You can't say, "Well, I'm even better than that guy who's getting thirty. I get 40. You still have to have a track record. You still have to leave enough money for your investors relative to other alternatives that uh, that they're still willing to pay that premium. That is correct. And you have to recognize the fact is that although you don't want to give it to me, and you rather give it to John Paulson, there are these bad years for him. Uh, and it means that you'll – a lot of times you'll give him 20 percent of your winnings in the good years, and in the bad years, he doesn't, he doesn't write you a check. <laughs> He's always it's, – it's, I assume it's – he doesn't pay 20 percent of the losses, correct? That is correct. That, that, that's correct on hedge funds. Private equity funds are a little bigger because – a little better rather because the private equity fund typically is out there for 10, 13 years, and you do net – winners and losers within a fund. 
So the, right. That's different. The, the incentive alignment in private equity is a little bit better to my you know, mind than the hedge funds, but it's still the case that you can have one fund that's terrible and then raise another fund three years later that turns out to be great, and you don't net the first fund against the second fund. Now, let me ask you a related question, which is not out of your paper, and if you don't know the rough magnitudes, we'll, we'll move on. But if we thought of three different parts of our capital market in America, uh, the investment bank part, the hedge fund part, and the private equity part, um, what are the magnitudes, if you know, of how many people are in those businesses at the top and what share of assets of total capital they're allocating. Do you have any rough idea about that? Does anybody know? So in our paper, you know, our estimates were, you know, about similar size. You know, we had about 3,000 hedge fund investors in the top 0.1% and about 3,000 private equity and venture capital investors in the top 0.1%. So the numbers of people were the same and what do we estimate for fees? The fees were sort of about the same order of magnitude. And this was 04, and I, you know, the numbers might be eh, 04 versus today, maybe a little bit higher. Um, but, you know, what do we have? Sort of $25 billion. Yeah, so they must be higher because we only have $25 billion for the hedge fund investors overall. I mean, all the top 25 did that. Uh, a couple of years ago, and, and then, that tells you something about obviously how much money they have under management using yeah, these sort and of we, market. And, and, and as I said, we you know we suspect we also under un, you know we were conservative in in the numbers we estimated for uh, the non CEOs in uh, private equity over the and venture we had the same order of magnitude you know twenty five thirty billion. And what about Wall Street? What about investment banks? Wall Street, we had the same order of magnitude for the investment bankers was $28 billion. So uh, we had all three of those groups you know, in roughly the same buckets. I would say today, you know, the investment bankers you know, have really been hit by uh, both the – well, three things. The, the crisis has uh, made – there are fewer investment bankers, and uh, the investment bankers that are left are – not doing as well, particularly since you know they they tend to be very pro-cyclical. They you know when the economy is doing well and markets are good, they do a lot more deals. So uh, the bankers, I suspect, are are down a fair amount. Uh, you know, hedge fund and private equity investors are probably you know about the you know are are still doing okay. And when you said they're roughly the same magnitude, are you is it a pro, is it roughly right to say then that? Highly talented financial people on a per capita basis. Those were total numbers per, for the groups. Uh, would the per capita gains to those folks and, and returns be roughly the same? You'd expect them to be if there is a market for talent. Obviously, somebody running a hedge fund could go work for a private equity firm. Someone running a private equity firm could go onto Wall Street. They obviously move around. They get specialized, but they have similar opportunities. You'd expect there – if there is a market, you'd expect them to do have similar compensation. Yeah, I think the, you know, I'm looking now at the Forbes 400 in 2008. And this is, you know, this is corroborating to uh, what what we talked about earlier. Uh, I've got 27 hedge fund investors out of 400. 
I've got 33 private equity investors, and I've got 29 real estate investors. So roughly, you know, the same number in the Forbes 400. And by the way, that's that's wealth, right? That's over 20%. That's like 89 out of the 400 in the Forbes 400 are hedge fund, private equity, or real estate investors. And that's the, the Forbes 400. Is that wealth or income? Forbes 400 is wealth. Okay, so th- there's some alignment there then. Absolutely. Uh, so going back to the, your the study, the CEOs you said did about the same as as the total group itself. Were there any folks within the group who did particularly better than others? Were the hedge fund managers are they all kind of moving up together, or is there some parts of the groups that are? I think the hedge fund managers they had this huge increase uh, in the '90s. So my sense is both the uh, you know this would be true for private equity and hedge funds. You know the money under management, for example, in uh, private equity uh, increase. Let's see. Billions, you know, from 1986 to 2005, increased by a factor of uh, 30, 40 times. Um, and of course, that was spread over, you know, a number of people. But you know, there was a huge explosion in private equity, and there was also a similar explosion in hedge funds let's see where's the money under management 35 billion in 91 to um the trillion in 2004 and that Whoa. subsequently you know kept kept on going so uh the money man i think the uh you know hedge fund and private equity managers uh really you know increased markedly over this period which is and more than the more than the CEO and much that's very very good right we want we're thrilled that people are funding new ventures that they're allocating capital if indeed they're doing it wisely uh, we want both that we want that to happen and we want the people who do it to do it well I I agree I'm a huge let's, let's I, I think the evidence on on the private equity and venture capital industries uh, is very good so I've got some other research. Uh, on private equity and venture, private equity actually the the returns there have consistently been better than the returns to the public markets, uh, and that's net of fees. If you do it gross of fees, they've been a lot better, and that suggests that the the private equity investors are actually making their companies more efficient. Uh, I think venture capital venture capital has not been great in the the last ten years in terms of what they've delivered to their investors. Venture capital was spectacular in the in the '90s, but I think the companies that venture capitalists fund tend to be the innovators that uh, I think tend to I have risk. a lot of externalities that yeah. uh, that they don't capture. And so, so the short answer to your question is, is: private equity and venture, I think, are actually quite good uh, for society. The hedge funds are hard. The hedge funds are, are a little trickier, I think. Well, they're doing a lot of different things, obviously. Exactly. Um, but I think the fundamental point that, that I think is should be emphasized is that unlike some activities in 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 the uh, marketplace, if you're really good at say funding new ventures or helping private equity uh, enterprises, people there's no limit to how much money people can give you. Uh, you will you will grow. 
according to your there is a market test is what I, is the way I would really say it if you if you're successful and you're better than your your peers uh, people will throw money at you and that is correct some and of it's luck obviously there, there's a role for for randomness obviously you can be fooled by randomness but uh, in general if you're consistently bad you lo- you don't get to play that's exactly what happens in private equity venture and hedge funds so let's turn to Wall Street um, and let me put a a less cheerful uh, hypothesis on the table and get your reaction. Um, starting uh, in the 90s, most investment banks, I think all, uh, almost all of the big ones, went public. Uh, why that is is a question. One of the things that changed in the 90s is we were in a period where it became more likely that the federal government would bail you out if you lent money uh, to uh, bad investments uh, as opposed to made bad equity investments. But by being a lender, starting with Continental Illinois in 1984 and then through the Mexican crisis of 95 and a little bit of, you could argue, long-term capital management, the federal government did not for, for a whole bunch of reasons, but I'm not happy with any of them particularly, decided that lenders, if you were large, could get your money back, uh, 100 cents on the dollar. That surely made it easier to borrow and uh, lend, and that made it easier to leverage capital in those um, in that activity, and that in turn made it easier for the executives in those businesses to gamble with other people's money rather than their own. Unlike um, the hedge funds and the and the venture capitalists who were in private equity who were clearly uh, taking equity stakes, not where they could lose everything. That suggests to me. A depressing story where investment banks had a heads I win, tails uh, you lose, or lived in that world, and were able to grow very large and with much less risk to their individual uh, well-being. And in turn, they allocated capital very poorly, uh, trillions into the housing market, uh, which many of them paid a very small price uh, ex post. What do you think of that? I, I am not a big believer in that argument. Uh, I think to uh, I, I uh, what? Where do I start on that? I Sorry, think it's a long first, argument. First of all, the view that that bankers, you know, did heads I heads I win, tails you lose, and that they thought that way, um, I think, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You you look at uh you know look at Bear Stearns and Lehman. Um I you do. Know, fold and Kane at Bear Stearns, fold at Lehman. You know, they they both had hundreds of millions of dollars in Bear Stearns and Lehman stock. They lost a billion apiece. And on paper. they lost a billion apiece and they surely would, you know, I think if you ask them, would they, you know, would they do it over again? They'd say no way. Well, let me... And I think they they believed in, in what they were doing. And I think they, they just didn't think that, you know, what, what happened could possibly happen. They were, they were surprised. A strange, and, a strange and I think defense. Yeah, you know, the, 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 I think that's, that's true in general. But that's a strange defense for someone whose job it is. To not be surprised, the CEO of an investment bank. Um, let me push. Let me take your example because I use them, and in, in when I write about it, I Fold and Kane, the CEO of Lehman, the CEO of Bear Stearns. They each—it's beautiful because they each lost about a billion when their Correct. stock when their stock values were wiped out. 
leaving them with almost the same amount as their as their paltry nest egg, a mere five hundred million. Now, where did that come from? Oh, that, be careful! Where, well, where do you get where do you get the five hundred million? That that this is where there's been a lot of misinformation. What what are you talking about? The five hundred. Happy million? to learn. Happy to learn that I'm misinformed. But here's the way I have read the data. <clears throat> they um, their stocks, uh, Bear Stearns, I think peaked at uh, one seventy, right, and then uh, ended up crashing at. Uh, I guess it started at the end was. It started at ten, then they decided, or went down to three, but close to close enough to zero that they lost. That somebody who had held it through that ride lost a lot of money. Right. But of course, it bounced around a lot before that, and it bounced around a lot during that. It didn't go straight down. It didn't yep. plummet. Uh, and and uh, folded. And they, they sold. Some they stock. sold. They sold when they could, and they didn't put it back into their own company. They were and they and they, they, gambled. And, they got, and they got some bonuses and some yeah, salary. Yeah, and they didn't put it back into that one egg. So it, here's, they here's the missing link, and this Go is ahead. you know Lucian Bebchuk has written this and yep, sort of makes has. this case. They took out about as much as as they had left in, right? And it would be gauche. It would be gauche to be running the company and have none left. So you couldn't sell but, it all, and there's literal regulation against it. Let me tell you the missing, the missing, the missing in, uh, insight there that, that Lucian and I, uh, you know, Lucian gave this paper to seminar and, and was completely at a loss when I mentioned this. Go for Much it. Much of the equity that Fold and Kane received was in the form of options and restricted stock. Do you know what the tax treatment is of options and restricted stock? I do not. You pay ordinary income tax on that. Okay. And do you know what ordinary income tax rates are in New York City? High. 50%. Federal, state, and local. Now, if you get $2 billion in restricted stock, what do you pay on that in taxes? A billion. A billion. And to pay those taxes, what do you have to do with that restricted stock? You have to sell it. Right. So if you sold a billion dollars stock. Which they did. Uh, it went all to roughly. pay taxes. Well, not all of it. it did. The example I just gave you, all of it went to pay taxes. If I got $2 billion of restricted stock. Right. That's $2 billion of income. I owe a billion dollars in taxes. I have to sell a billion dollars of my stock to pay my taxes. I'm left with a billion dollars of stock in the company. And that went to zero. I end up with zero. So why did they sell their stock all along the way like that? They did to pay their taxes. So, so I'm not saying that they ended up with nothing, which is the extreme that you know from the example I gave you. But they ended up with far less than people like you or Lucian think they did because they're paying taxes of fifty percent on everything they've been granted. And so they, the bottom line there is that pre-tax, and then these are the estimates. I think Lucian has pre-tax. They took out as much uh, as they lost in the uh, in the crisis. You know when the things crashed. But after tax, you know they might have ended up with nothing, but they certainly ended up with far less than uh, you'd give them credit for pre-tax. Well, the the five hundred, I I can't remember. Five hundred is pre-tax. That is pre-tax. Well, that's not the way Jimmy Kane tells it in House of Cards by William Cohen. I, I it, you know, he's interviewed in there, and he says, uh, "Yeah, I lost a billion, 
which is tough on my my ears, but he said I'm left with. He says he's left with half a billion. Yeah. So okay. maybe okay. But so maybe that's, that's he may you know he's keeping score. He he may have picked the pretax number for, also, for his own ego, also, and I'm willing to accept that that's an inflated number. It's a good, it's a great point about the taxes. But go ahead. He also what? No, go ahead. I, he he was there for a very very long time, yeah, but I guess Fold was too. Okay, that's point taken. I, I, I don't know the, the it, estimates that Lucian would give you would be uh, that it bound. was a billion versus <laughs> a billion, and Kane is saying half a billion versus a billion. Although not all that half a billion is from Bear Stearns. Some right. of it's presumably from other investments, but Good, yeah. fair enough. So the point is, the answer is not zero, which is the extreme I gave, but the answer is not the billion that uh, uh, you gotcha. started out with. And it really, you know, so coming back to my main point, these people were not happy to lose it all. Oh, no. Uh, certainly no, they not. They prefer to roll the dice in one. There's no then, doubt about it. And then as you go lower down in the organization, uh, the amount of money people had taken out actually decreases. So That's interesting. You know, remember who's making the decisions on all this. It's, it's not necessarily the people at the top. It's the people you know, lower and lower down. Correct. And as you go lower down, you know, these people you know, increasingly you know, hadn't taken much out and ended up losing, you know, if not all, you know, a huge amount or a huge fraction. Well, going back to this question of you know, what's the right narrative, which is the way I tend to think about it, um, when these were privately held firms and they were investing their own money, they took less risk. Uh, that is not true. Not true. Okay, explain. Let, let me give you let me give you a, a really interesting example, which goes to you know the the story that that I'm telling that it was you know more or less the perfect storm and uh, they kind of got just hubris uh, overconfident. Yeah. Um, there was a a partnership in the late twenties that. Um, most of the partners, basically all the partners' net worth was invested in the partnership. And the partnership put up, you know, decided to put together a leveraged investment vehicle. They put up 50% of the partnership's capital into that investment vehicle. It was leveraged. They sold this in 1928. And when the market crashed in 1929, this partnership almost went bankrupt, took it more than 20 years to recover. And remember, this is, this is you know, partners own capital. There's no uh, FDIC or anything. That was Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And they almost didn't live to tell the tale. Exactly. Say. Well, that so happens. Is, people make mistakes. That's uh, people true. People make mistakes. And I think the, this is what happened in the 2006-2007 you know, time period, and it was exacerbated by the fact that the SEC let them take on more leverage. No doubt. And uh, that, that I think was a decision in 2004 uh, or thereabouts where the leverage ratios were, uh, they were allowed to increase their, their leverage ratio substantially. But I don't think... You know, the, the the view that it was heads I win, tails you lose, I think just doesn't explain it because this has happened. These sorts of events have happened, 
you know, really through all time. But, you know, you had the panic of 1873, very similar, people losing their own money. You had 1907, people losing their own money. You had 1928 or 1929, people losing their own money. And then you had uh, 2007, 2008, which looks a whole lot like uh, those other episodes. So um, I think, you know, my, my view on this, the capitalist system, and for better or for worse, you uh, get these periods where um, people become, um, you know, whether it's overly optimistic or they, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, decide to take on, you know, extra risk and, uh, and then they get things wrong and you get a, you get a, a big downturn. So you don't think that the policy response in the past 30 years to these failures, especially in 2008, where every uh, financial institution that was large was bailed out 100 cents. Its creditors were bailed out 100 cents on the dollar with the exception of Lehman and I think Wachovia, which I think the FDIC, if I got the – I may have that wrong, but I did a podcast with Vincent Reinhardt. There was one bank where creditors, because it wasn't an, uh, a, a Treasury uh, Fed intervention, it was an FDIC intervention. They actually made the creditors take a haircut that is except less than they were promised for fixed um, investments like bonds. Uh, you don't think that that has made the probability of the – you don't think there's a moral hazard issue there? You don't think it makes it worse or do you think it's just not big enough to explain the – the mess itself. Yeah, I just, I just don't think it's, it's, it's big enough. It's. Uh, but do you think it has an effect, or do you think it's irrelevant? I don't, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you. You know, another thing that was interesting about the crisis, you know, in this regard, is that, you know, obviously the mortgage-backed market, you know, was the one that blew up, right? And that was, yeah. you know, that that'd be consistent with your story. But the the leveraged loan market, going back to private equity. Um, that market actually did just fine. You know, there were, you know, people were saying there were going to be a huge number of defaults by the private equity investors and by the, the private equity funded companies. And they just didn't happen because they learned their lesson in the late eighties and, uh, structured deals in a more responsible way. The, the heads you win, you know, heads I win, tails you lose story would have said, you know, you should have seen, these problems everywhere, and you really just saw it in the in the mortgage market, which was, I think, you know, was an innovation gone awry. Well, the mortgage market and the CDS market, which both were were innovations that were relatively new, and uh, they, you know, people got it wrong. Yeah, it could be. Although, again, I would argue that the uh, I, I don't know any explain that leverage loan market. I don't know what is that uh, loans to leverage. You know, people, you know, were making, when you did a leverage buyout and there was, you know, record amount of leverage buyout volume in, in 06, 07, and 08, um, you, you know, banks and uh, other investors made, you know, highly leveraged loans to the companies. And uh, those loans, they were risky. They had high interest rates and uh, very few of them defaulted. Right. So my... My explanation of that, if, if to be consistent with my story, would be that those lenders—and correct me if I'm wrong, 
have less political pull than the folks who got rescued in the bailouts of 1995, right. 84, et cetera, that they I were not too that, big to fail. Is I that think untrue? that would be wrong because I because don't think they were you – yeah, know, that, that's that's because the same, the same people were buying them as were buying the mortgage. It is. It's the same large investment banks doing the, those leverage yep. financing. Well, that's yep. good. That's counter evidence. I, I agree with that. That's a really uh, – that's a provocative uh, example I would want to – I need to look at. Um, the puzzle for me is that I, I think um, you know, my favorite example is Ricardo Ribonado, who's the chief risk officer of the Royal Bank of Scotland. He wrote a beautiful book. I interviewed him about the book, but not about the crisis. His book is The Plight of the Fortune Tellers, where he explains how bad we are at estimating risk and how uncertain, uncertain our understanding of uncertainty is and how the value at risk model is a really just you – know, we don't really understand it. And he writes that book, I think, in 05 or 06, and he's the chief risk officer. He wasn't fooled, um, but for some reason, when he tapped his boss on the shoulder, presumably his boss said, leave me alone. So maybe it was a human failing, but maybe the incentives weren't there that had been there in the past. That's um, what I find interesting. Yeah, no, it's interesting, although I, yeah, I would argue you know, the same thing happened in 1929, the same thing happened in 1907, and you know they weren't being bailed out then, and that's uh – um, but you know, in all three cases, what would the right answer be? You know, higher capital requirements. So we would probably agree on the right answer. We might not agree on the you know what's causing it. Well, I hope we can come back and talk about that because you've written some interesting stuff on how to reduce the probability of a future mess and your own further thoughts on the on the crisis, which um, maybe we can talk about it down the road. Good. My guest today has been Stephen Kaplan. Steve, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. You are very welcome. It was fun. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.